0: Sir, is your life characterized by the grace of God upon you each and every day? In the second week, we talked about faith. Your life must be characterized by faith in Jesus. So, as you go through life storms, are you trusting in God's goodness, His power, His love, His faithfulness? Are you trusting in His word and in His promises? In the third week, we talked about right. Thinking. Your life must be characterized by right thinking because I can't have peace of mind if my mind is just going towards sinful thoughts. So I need to shepherd my mind, my thoughts. And then we talk about self-control. My life must be characterized by self-control. I have to learn to manage, corral, and shepherd my emotions. Because if my emotions go rogue and they just go crazy on their own, and they do, don't they? They do. We spin toward negativity and pessimism and anxiety. So we have to learn to reel those suckers in, tame them, harness them, point them in the right direction so they don't carry us off in the wrong direction. And then we talked about peacemaking. Our life must be characterized by peacemaking. How do I say to God, God, I want my life to be characterized by your peace if I'm not living in peace with my fellow man? It's a contradiction. So if we have relationships that are broken and torn, we need to take some steps to bring patience and grace and mercy and forgiveness to bear with our relationships down here. And the more we do that, the more we will live in the peace of God. And then we talked about obedience. Our life must be characterized by obedience. I need to see what God's word says and then actually begin to implement it and apply it and live by it and conform to God's word. And the more I live in the holiness that he's called me to live, the more I get to enjoy God's peace in my life. And then last week we talked about prayer. Our life must be characterized by prayer, the right kind of prayer. It's not just give me, give me, give me, protect me, protect me, protect me, me, bless me, bless me, bless me, which is what 99.99% of all of us pray 99.9% of the time, meaning all of us, this is all how we pray. But that prayer isn't the kind of prayer that God says, then I will give you peace. The kind of prayer that gives us peace is communal, relational prayer where we're actually spending time not asking something of God, but just asking for God. I want more of him. I want my soul and his spirit to connect. And so this week we're going to add an eighth and final lifestyle characteristic. It's a big one. Contentment. Peace comes through contentment if we want to live in the peace of God, we must learn to be content in whatever circumstance we happen to find ourselves in. So I know everybody did some studying before today. I got a pop quiz. And everybody just went nuts because you thought the ninth grade, oh, anxiety attack. Okay, pop quiz time. Who is more content? Which is the more content man? The man with a million dollars or a man like me with four children. And let me promise you that it's me because I don't want no more. (laughs) I am all kinds of content. (laughs) I am at peace with the amount of arrows in my quiver. Don't need, don't want no more. All right. (laughs) I've gone to Haiti six times since the big earthquake back in 2010. And on my first five trips, uh, visited the same orphanage. It's Yvonne's Orphanage. And folks, you go there, it it would break your heart um, how these kids, these orphans who've been abandoned by parents, how they live. Like in this particular orphanage, it is a structure made out of concrete. You put concrete structure in the Haiti sun, what happens to that structure? It becomes an oven. That might be the single hottest place I've personally ever been in. It gets so hot. No air conditioning, no fans, no electricity, no plumbing. You got all these kids living in there, and as you see in that picture right there, there's bump beds literally along every wall. Every wall has a bump bed. There's not a space, there's not a bump bed. And even so, there's not enough beds. Like the kids actually have to sleep two to three to a bunk bed. Because there's there's just not enough place for them to sleep in. There's no closets. There's no dressers in this place, which doesn't really matter because they got nothing to put in a dresser or a closet. No No clothing other than what they're wearing. Maybe a change of clothing and no toys and no school supplies and nothing. They have nothing. Well, on my sixth trip, which was last year, we visited a completely different orphanage. And I thought that the other one, the other one would always break my heart. And when I left this place, I was in tears. This place makes the other place look like the Ritz Carlton. As bad as the other one was, this one, look at it. It's a it's made out of, like, put-together wood and some tin, and it's wrapped with tarp. It's right on the dirt. There's no concrete floor or anything. And not only that, it's not like bunk beds around the sides of the room. It is wall-to-wall, end-to-end. Most of, the mat- Most of them don't even have mattresses. They just put cardboard on top of that metal spring to sleep in. At least the other place had an outhouse of sorts. This place just had a field in the back where the kids go to. The kids, completely—you could see it. Malnourished. You'd see a, a six-year-old kid that looked like he was three or four. He was so small and, and malnourished, he just couldn't grow physically. And so we got in the car. I've never seen poverty like that, and I've been to Haiti six times and um, a few, couple other places in the world. And frankly, I've never seen poverty like we saw in that one orphanage. And we got in the car, and I got in the front passenger seat, and. Justin Casper and Matt Payne, they got in the back seat. And I don't think they know this, but I looked in the front and I was crying. I was crying for two reasons. One, One was, this is immoral. Like, to see people living like that, let alone children. Folks, I promise you, I am no socialist. But it is immoral to see people living like that when we live the way that we do. So that, 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 that wrenched my heart with conviction. But here's the other thing. Those kids with nothing were so happy. There was a joy. They weren't fighting. No sadness. They weren't mad. They weren't complaining that they didn't have the new smartphone. They weren't clamoring, where's my free college education? They weren't clamoring for any of that. They were just happy joyful children. Why? They were content, believe it or not. There is a power and a joy in contentment. There is a blessedness and a bliss in contentedness. It is a beautiful and a shockingly amazing state of mind, heart, and soul. It makes all the difference in the world. Benjamin Franklin said this, Content makes poor men rich. Discontent makes rich men poor. Discontent makes us poor. It doesn't matter how much you have. If you're discontent, you're enslaved. It robs you of the capacity to enjoy God and God's blessings if you're discontent. But content makes you rich. It frees you. It frees you to something so much better. It frees you to actually enjoy the love, the power, the strength, the goodness of God in our lives. Peace comes through contentment. And so I do want us to look at Philippians chapter 4. Just a couple of verses here. See if it's possible for us to glean a few things about what it means to be content. How contentment should be a lifestyle habit for us. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, and let's just read there in verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So the Apostle Paul, he was a missionary. He traveled from Jerusalem, and eventually at some point he actually ends up in Rome, And he's traveling around that portion of the Mediterranean world. And he's sharing the gospel. He's talking about Jesus. And he's making disciples. And he's planting churches. And Paul, he was a tent maker. He would make and sell tents to support himself. However, he did often rely on the loving generosity of Christians to support him and his cause. And the Philippians, the people that he's writing this letter to, the Philippians were major donors of Paul. But for reasons that we're not told, there was a gap in between their gifts. There, there's a certain amount of time had gone that they weren't able to supply something to Paul. And it's not that they didn't want to. They loved God. They loved Paul they loved the gospel. It wasn't that they didn't want to. It wasn't that they weren't willing. It just tells us that for some reason, this length of time, they had no opportunity to give. So maybe they didn't have any money to give. Or maybe they had the money but couldn't physically get it to Paul. So regardless of the reason, Paul said, like, for a while you had no opportunity to do so. But then God opened the door for this to take place. And the Philippians, if you were to read a little bit earlier in the book of Philippians, they sent this dude named Epaphroditus... You know his parents got a tongue lashing when he got old enough. Like, why do you name me Epaphroditus? It sounds like a girl's name, and it sounds like some weird Greek god. Why are you calling me this? But Epaphroditus, anyway. They, the Philippians sent Epaphroditus all the way from Philippi, which is in Greece, traveled all the way to Rome, which is where Paul is at the point that he's writing this letter. They sent him there, and they, he delivered a monetary gift to Paul. And in Paul, uh, as a result of receiving this gift, he says in verse 10, he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. I rejoice greatly, greatly. And he's rejoicing not because a physical material need has been met, but he rejoices because of the loving kindness that his fellow Brothers and sisters in Christ in Philippi have shown he's actually moved and touched that they would consider him and think of him and support him and give him uh, a gift. And so he says he's so moved by the love of fellow Christians that he praises God as a result. But he wants to make sure that there is no misunderstanding. He wants to make sure that he's not rejoicing because of the money He's rejoicing because of their gift, because they love him. But it's not the money that moves him. So that's what he gets to in verses 11 and 12. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What What he tells the Philippians in just those few verses is, this: I'm so happy that you sent this gift. I really do appreciate it. I want you to know that I thank you, and more than that, I thank God for it. Thank you so much. But let me tell you, I really have no need. This is about needs. My my needs have been met. I'm good. I am content. I am fully content. I have learned how to be content. I have learned the secret sauce of contentedness. Now, this is so important for us to note here. He says he's learned how to be content in plenty. He's learned how to be content in abundance. Does that make sense? Isn't it interesting that we have to learn to be content when we have a lot, not only when we have a little? What is, what is that all about? And it's, it's, it's this. It's like this. Contentedness has nothing, nothing to do with how much stuff you have, how much money you have, or how good your stuff may be. Contentedness has nothing to do with the size of your home or how well decorated and furnished it may be. It has nothing to do with the vehicle you drive. It has nothing to do with your, how lavish your last vacation be, may have been. It has nothing to do with that. Scripture actually tells us that the more we look for satisfaction in the things of the world, the more we will be disappointed. Now, do you believe that? Be careful. Be careful because we're in church. And church folk are supposed to nod in agreement to that question. But let's be careful. Do we really believe that to be true? Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. The word there, vanity, is empty. Meaningless. So do you believe that? That he who loves money, well, Rick, it's not that I love money. I just kind of sort of like it because it kind of sort of does some nice things. And I understand. Do you believe that's to be true? The contentedness that your heart seeks and longs for and pursues and so desperately wants, that contentedness cannot be found in the things of the world. It's not here, folks. It's in nothing, nothing down here. What it what is contentedness? I, I actually think that we have a really weird, bizarre definition. I think that sometimes we think of contentedness as settling. Contentedness does not mean to settle. Oh, woe is me in my plight. I guess this is my lot in life. I, I guess this is as good as it gets. I might as well just accept it and be content. That's not contentedness, that's defeatism. That's a fake anti contentedness straight from the very pit of hell. I guess I'll just accept how bad and poor it is. I guess I'll just take it and and just be a man about it and uh, might as well just be content. That is not. That is not what it is. It's not settling. You know, the world defines contentedness as being okay with something because it's good enough. Like somehow it's adequate. It has met the minimum requirements, the minimum standards. That's how the world defines it. That's not how the Bible defines contentedness at all. The Bible defines it not as like you just kind of sort of met a minimum requirement. It says, no, contentedness is being fully satisfied, completely satisfied fulfilled in every way. All of your hopes, all of your dreams, all of your aspirations, all of your needs, all of your wants have not been barely met, but they have been met to the max to overflowing. That is contentedness. That is where peace lives. There. There. It's getting to that place where we are actually good. I mean, not settling, woe is me, I mean, no, actually, good with our life, good with what we have, and good with what we don't. That is contentedness. Contentedness in the Bible is, you know what, I'm good, no matter what I have, or no matter what I ain't got, because I have God. And he loves me. That is is contented. Folks, I'm not talking about become, turning from a half cup, half empty, half cup, you know. Just completely butchered that one, right? My cup is half empty type person into a uh, cup, half full person. I'm not talking about just changing your perspective. You're turning your frown upside down, that kind of junk. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about becoming the kind of person that's like, I have a cup and there's something in it. Thank you, Jesus that you gave me a cup and that there's something in it. I am content. I don't deserve the cup. I don't deserve what's in it. If you give me one more drop, I don't deserve it. If you give me one less, I'm still more than I deserved. And if the cup is empty, I still have the cup. And if I don't have the cup, I still have you. It's all good. Folks, that is what it means to be content. And that is where peace lives. It's in in that space and unless we actually take some steps in that direction where that actually starts to become how we think and how we feel in our hearts unless we do that that peace is going to be extremely elusive and fleeting and elusive the rest of our lives it's gonna be hard to grab onto and i gonna be able to hold on to it discontent is like kryptonite we've got a cool movie coming out soon right little Batman, Superman action art. so a little reference to DC. Discontent is like kryptonite to peace. The two can't, can't live together. You can't be discontent and have the peace of God. They're mutually exclusive, so we have to be like Paul. We have to learn how to be content. And the reason we have to learn it is because this is not normal or natural to us. In our fallen, sinful state... Like everything against us tries to be content with the wrong things, and then even so fights against any level of contentedness. So we have to learn how to be content. We have to learn the secret, as Paul did, the secret of contentedness. So let's talk about what this secret is. Spend the rest of our time just kind of noodling through, right? If I want to if I want to enjoy peace, I gotta be content. What's the secret to that? Number one, the secret of contentment is learning to make Jesus the content of your life. The secret to being content is making Jesus the content of your life. Kent Dunnington, he's a a philosopher, he wrote this. He says, we are unlimited. Well, I'm sorry, let me back up. We are limited in every way but one. We have unlimited desire. Think about that. You are limited in every way, physically, mentally, like in every way. We are all limited. We all have limitations. But in one, we don't have any limit. And that is in our capacity to want and to desire. We are chocked full of wants and needs. Folks, you are always wanting. You're always wanting more. And you're always looking for those wants to be met. You're always wanting, always wanting more, and always wanting for those needs to be met. And what's weird is, that's actually right. That's actually a good thing. It's by design. God made you a creature to want. God made you specifically in such a way to want everything. But here's the catch. Everything is in Jesus. We're made to want, but everything we ultimately want and need and desire is found in Jesus Christ. The secret to being content is understanding that our heart can only be satisfied by him who made our heart. So we have to wrap our lives around him. Ultimately, the lack of contentment that we have is the sinful notion that Jesus is not enough. At the end of the day, when you're feeling discontent, if you are our follower of Jesus, if your faith is in Christ, those moments of discontent is your sinful heart crying out, Jesus ain't sufficient. You need something else. You need something more. So we start looking around for something else. We start looking to the things of the world. Which is what the Bible calls idolatry. Idolatry, false gods, false idols, things of the earth that that we pursue. Idolatry is the sin of trying to meet your desires and your aspirations in anything other than Jesus Christ Himself. And if you think about it, idolatry is insanity, it is the ultimate degree of futility. Because everything down here breaks, burns, corrodes, crumbles, deteriorates, dies, decomposes, erodes, expires, fails, fades, molds, rots, rusts, gets eaten by moss, gets stolen, wears down, wears out. Everything. Everything. Nothing down here can ultimately fill your heart. It's not that it's all bad. God gives us a spouse, you know, or a job, or career, money, food on the table, children. There's wonderful blessings. It's not that it's in and of itself wrong, but at the end of the day, all this stuff ain't going to be here. And none of this can ultimately fill your heart. Only the God who made your heart can fill your heart. So I think that we need to heed the words of Thomas A Kempis. Oh, dude. He said this. There is no peace in the heart of a carnal person, nor in the person that is addicted to outward things, but there is peace in the heart of a spiritual and devout person. The person who lives where their really main thing, the thing that they're drawn to, that they obsess over, the person who's just drawn to the things of the world cannot experience the peace of God in their life. But the person who is in a committed relationship with Jesus and they're pursuing him and the things of God and they're putting him above everything else, that person will swim in an ocean of the blessedness of the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Psalm 34 verse 8 says this, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Is the Lord good? Let me let me ask a question and you say it in the affirmative. God is good, and God's people said. Amen. Do you believe that? He is the goodest good of all possible. Goods Of all the goods in all of existence, of all the goods in all of the world, in all of the universe, Jesus is gooder than all of them. If you take the other goods in the world and you put them together, you're like, well, Jesus is gooder than all of that. If you take the greatest other good in the world and you just compare it by itself to Jesus, clearly Jesus is good. He is the goodest good of all possible goods because he is gooder than all other goods put together. He's the goodest. That's my paraphrase of Psalm 34. Come taste and see that he is good. And if there is any doubt about how good he is, I want you to know that he loves you. And he came out of the bliss and the glory and the light of heaven. And he entered this cold, dark, awful world. He took on flesh. He became one of us. How? I don't know. It was a supernatural miracle through the virgin birth, through Mary, where divinity and humanity were united in the person of Jesus Christ. And he lived among us. And he never did any harm. And he always did good. And he taught what was right. And he performed miracles. And he healed healed people. And he gave sight to the blind. And he gave hearing to those who couldn't hear. And he fed people who were hungry. He's good, y'all. He's good. And then he went to a cross. went to a cross, where there your sin and my sin, your failures and my failures, our immorality, our godlessness, our our lies, our gossip, our lust, our pride, all of that was just heaped upon the shoulders of Jesus. And there he says, I will man up, I will God up, I will take all of this and I will absorb it unto myself. I will take the punishment that you deserve. I will take the judgment that you deserve. I will die the death that you deserve on account of your sin. I'm going to die it for you because i love you and anyone and everyone who believes that folks our sin is forgiven our future in glory is secure we come to know the god of the universe our spirit gets united to his he gives us his spirit he then says i'm going to be like A father to you all. I'm going to provide and protect. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to be there with you every step of the way. You don't deserve it. Any. You don't deserve any of it. But I'm going to do it for you because I love you. Let me tell you. God is good. God is good. And in him, you can find your all. Your everything, your desires met your fullness, and your satisfaction. So I think that one thing that we need to do is that we have to fight against that impulse, that impulse to get to look at the things of the world and say, oh, here's my satisfaction. We've got to fight against that and make Jesus... The center of our life. Peace comes through contentment. And contentment, the secret to being content, is making Jesus the content of your life. You build your life upon him. You build your life around him. He becomes the center of your life. You set your faith, your mind, your heart squarely upon Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. And then you commune with him. You pray to him. You speak. Speak to him you enjoy a relationship with him so the secret of contentment is learning to make jesus the content of your life number two it means learning to think bigger got to learn to think bigger saint augustine obviously i'm in this thing where i'm reading a bunch of old people here recently so saint augustine wrote if we desire only transient earthly joys our desire is to what too small listen carefully you want to be content you need you need bigger hopes and dreams that doesn't make sense right okay that that kind of works against it like we said no no no. like if i want to be content i got to like bring everything down no that's settling that's settling no we need bigger greater desires thomas akimpis wrote it is good that we sometimes have troubles and crosses for they often make us think about ourselves and help us realize that we are not part of this world and should not place our trust in any worldly thing. We were made for something much more than this. We were created for glory and eternity. Not this. Not this crude Earthly, lowly, temporal stuff. Folks, we were made by God and for God. We were made for something significantly, profoundly greater than this stuff that we're kind of seeing and touching and feeling and smelling down here. Our problem is that our desires are way too small. Way, way too small. Our desires are way too easily and quickly met by this little trinkets and stuff down here. Folks, have God-sized desires, God-sized needs, God-sized wants, God-sized aspirations, God-sized so that it is only God who can fill them and nothing down here. Learn to think bigger. If you want peace, you got to look beyond the horizon of this world and you got to set your gaze on the heavenly and the eternal. Because once you do that and you see that that heavenly and eternal is found and met in Christ, you're content. You're content. So the secret of contentment is, one, making Jesus the content of your life. Two, it's learning to think bigger. And three, learning to make room. Learning to make room we spend so much time so much energy so much money filling ourselves with stuff A little retail therapy some netflix binging you know what i'm talking about but we're we're always consuming right we're always filling ourselves with something food I don't know if you're like me, but you have a bad day. I need to eat. Not because I'm hungry, but there's something about it that it's, it's some like medicating myself. Like there, a couple of years ago, and man, I, I love our praise team, and they, they, they work and they, they do everything God has gifted them. But this was like two or three years ago, and um, it was one of those rehearsals where it just didn't go very well. Not very smooth. And when things don't go smooth, sometimes tensions among people, sometimes clash, even in church. And, and it was one of those nights, and I went, I left rehearsal, and I, I went straight to Carly C's. I got a Giordano's pizza, a bag of Doritos, and a two-liter can of dry. I walked in the house, and before I had said anything, Jamie hadn't even looked at my face. She said, that bad, huh? <laughs> like, like, she knows that when things aren't going good and I've had a bad day, like, I for, re, for whatever reason, I hate it. Like, food is like a comfort to me. Well, it might be food, but for some of us, it's other things. It's why people run to alcohol or other addictive substances. It's why so many run, men particularly run to uh, pornography, gaming. I've got men, like grown men, two, three, four hours playing games, video, like what? It's escapism. It's a fantasy world, and we escape into this world. It's because we're self-medicating. My life isn't good, so let me get a distraction and find something else to self-medicate. And the thing about that is that we live in a country, a society, and a culture that celebrates indulgence. Oh, man, we celebrate it. We promote indulgence. In America, we know nothing of moderation. Nothing of moderation. If you can afford it, buy it. You earned your paycheck. If you can afford it, buy it. If you can do it, do it. You've earned it. You deserve it. We live in America. Why not? This is why you got your education and you got your job. You put in your 50 hours this week. Buy it. Do it. Live it up. The problem is that so long as we're filling our hearts and our minds with this stuff down here, there will never be room for true contentedness because there's no room for Jesus. There's no room for the Holy Spirit. There's no room for God and the presence of God in your life. So we have to learn to make room. I I read this article recently entitled, How to Stay a Christian in College. And it instructs college students um, to make small sacrifices every day, every day. So it says this, it says, make a vow, a vow to wake up and go to breakfast every morning, even if your first class isn't until 11 a.m. Choose a plain cheese pizza rather than pepperoni. You'll be surprised how these tiny sacrifices work in interior magic, shifting your focus ever so slightly from yourself. Once you're a little bit to the side, God can come to the center. The point of that article and of what I just read there is that if we make it a habit to to say purposeful no's, to the things of the world, we're in essence saying purposeful yeses to God. Does that make sense? That if I'm purposeful in my moderation, if I practice purposeful self-control and not indulge everything just because I can't, if I do that purposefully through those little sacrifices, I'm actually then communicating to my own hearts, that stuff doesn't satisfy that stuff doesn't feel. When I say no to that, I'm actually saying more to God. I'm telling my heart, that is where satisfaction and fulfillment are found. It's there. That's the point of fasting. I don't know if you ever practice fasting, but that's the point of fasting. It's actually saying, all right, I'm going to forego food, which is really important, for a while. And every time I feel a sense of hunger, I'm telling my heart, don't worry about that stuff. Focus on Christ. Make room for Christ. Don't be simply filled with the things of the world. Fill yourself with your relationship with Jesus. So Paul lived in the peace of God. And the reason why is because he learned the secret of contentment. And it's not a secret. Because it's been revealed and it's available to all of us. So how did, what is the secret? You learn to be content in Jesus. Build your life around him. Center yourself around Christ. You think bigger. Don't settle for the things of this world. Think bigger. Put your hopes and dreams up above. Set your mind and your gaze above. And you make room. You stop filling yourself with the worldly stuff so that you can be filled with the presence of God in your life and i'm certain of this that if we embrace that and we begin to live it out folks we'll live in the peace of god that surpasses all understanding so a couple of months ago i made a deal with emmett four-year-old emmett my little boy made a deal with him there was a something he was doing uh that i wanted him to stop and so i made a deal i said like if you stop doing this thing i'll take you to the store and i'll buy you a nice toy and i don't always bribe my kids but but you know some positive encouragement and stuff is good for an occasion and so this time it felt like a good thing to do and and he agreed he's like yep that's cool i'll stop doing that because i want a toy like sweet so like a week later got in the car went to toys r us which i tell you i'm 44. toys r us is still cool to me (laughs) But anyway, you see the logo, it's like, yay! You know, this is exciting. So we walk in, and we literally walk around the store for 30 minutes. And I'm like, what do you want, buddy? What do you want? And he's just running around, and he's like looking at this. And I'm, I'm, I was ready to drop some cash. I was ready. I was prepared to, to, to spend what I would consider for me a considerable amount of money for this gift. Because I wanted to. So we're running around, we're running around, we're running around. And finally, I started getting a little impatient. Like, what do you want? What do you want? He's pointing stuff. That's cool. What about that? What about this? And finally, I said, all right, buddy, it's time to make a decision. What do you want? And he smiled, just the biggest smile. And he knew where it was. He, like, ran around a corner and stuff. <laughs> Grab this $3 grabber thingy, it, it doesn't even extend. And he said, $3 y'all. And he said, daddy, can I have that? I'm like, yeah. And he grabbed it, he hugged it. And he started like jumping for joy in the store. Like and he ran like this to the cashier. And I was behind him and I had, to, I, 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 okay, I cry sometimes. <laughs> I'm, I don't care. <laughs> I'm in Tours R Us crying. Partly because I was glad I wasn't having to spend money. <laughs> I say that jokingly. No, I was so overwhelmed by how content he was with something like this. And, folks, if you're a follower of Jesus, do you know what gift it is that we have received? We should be running around hugging it in. I have the grace of God. I have the grace of God upon me. There is no greater gift. We should be running around with all levels of contentedness and joy and happiness. He gave his son. And then Jesus came and he gave his life for you. Because he loves you, because he desires your good. He doesn't want you to be fragile. He wants to take you out of a pit of darkness and move you into his marvelous life to be with him forever. And all who place their faith in Jesus, we receive, we're gifted with the Holy Spirit of God. We receive promise over promise over promise. We come to know him where we can commune with him. And he makes promises, I will give you all my strength and all my joy and all my love and all my peace for today and tomorrow. I've got you in the present, and I sure enough got you in the future. Are you content? William Randolph Hearst, he lived from 1863. To 1951, he was a politician and an extremely wealthy businessman. At the time, he built what was the newspaper empire in the United States, like the biggest newspaper chain in the country. And he invested a fortune in his life collecting pieces of art. He'd go around the world like just getting all these treasures from around the world and a piece of art. He's like, I got to have that. I got to have that. So he, he contacts uh, an agent, a guy that worked for him, basically his art dealer. He says, I want you to go around the globe, do whatever you got to do, spend as much money as you need to spend, take as much time as necessary, go everywhere, find that piece of art that I so want in my life. Months go by. The art dealer comes back and he says, Mr. Hirsch, I found it. He said, Where is it? He, True story it's in one of your warehouses. He already owned the piece of valuable, priceless treasure that he wanted. He spent months, money, time, effort, employees searching for something that already belonged to him. Christians, why are you searching? It already belongs to us. The peace of God is already ours. There's no need to spend time, money, fortune looking for something that God has already given. My peace I give to you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, that that treasure doesn't belong to you. Not yet. But all you have to do is place your faith in Jesus. Confess your sinner. He already knows. He loves you in spite of that. So I confess my sin, I turn away from that, Lord, and now I just want to give my life to you wholeheartedly. I want to follow you, Jesus, who died for me. I'm going to give my life to you. And folks, if you make that decision and that commitment, I promise you this, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding is yours. So what decision do you need to make today? What's God asking of you in this very moment to do? Are you living in the peace of God? If not, why not? What, which one of these characteristics that we've talked about is lacking from your life and that you need to spend a season like where you're like press into that and making that a priority? I'm going to make prayer a priority. I'm going to make obedience a priority. I'm going to make self-control a priority. What, what is it? Is it contentedness? God, I'm not content. Is it that? Lord, help me. Are you then willing To come alongside other Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. I need help in this one area. Will you help me and disciple me and shepherd me and mentor me? Will you hold me accountable? What decision do you need to make? And I'm going to ask you all, like I do every week, to bow your heads and close your eyes right now. And make the decision. I genuinely believe that any time God's Word is preached and any time we hear it, when the gospel is proclaimed and we hear it, I believe that that grace always compels us to take a step. Some step. And so I ask, what is the step that you're to take this morning? And I'm going to ask the praise team to come up and they're going to lead us in a closing song. But in the meantime, just in the privacy of your own heart. Call out to the Lord. with all heads bowed and all eyes closed, in a spirit of prayer and humility before our gracious God, our Savior, our King. I ask for God to bring upon us conviction, a good conviction, the kind that, that warms us. Lord Father, we, we struggle we struggle to, to live as followers of Christ as believers. The world gets in the way, our, our sinful heart gets in the way. So Lord, we I pray that you would help us to focus our souls' attention solely on you. To know that all fulfillment and satisfaction, all hope. And all dreams are met, they find their, their maximum in you and in you alone. For you are the creator, the ruler, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the, the one to whom all glory and all wealth and all honor and all authority belong to you. And you, Lord, you invite us to know your presence and to be showered by the riches of your glory now and forever. God, you do love us and you are good. The cross proves that and the empty tomb proves that it was all real. So, Lord, I pray for all of us that we would be a people that we would, in fact, learn to live in contentedness, that we would know you and know your peace. And still, with all Eyes closed and all heads bowed. I'm going to ask something, and we, we don't do this too often, but as the praise team sings, you can stand in where you are and join them. You can sit where you are, or you can come forward and take a knee beside me. But there be a group of us up here that would join in a spirit of unity that we're going to pursue to be content in Christ.